Welcome back to If You Know Your History on FN Afrikaan Nation Radio. My name is Paul Mavrudis and with me is scholar par excellence, uh, Greg Downs. Greg, how are you? Hello, Paul. Nice. I'm very well, thanks. Nice to see you again. It's been a, it's been a little while. Of course, you're in, in lockdown, but I haven't, haven't been to Melbourne now for a little bit. But yeah, nice to see you. You're looking well. Oh, it's the the light makes my hair look really nice. Oh, you no, see, very nice. Yeah, it's a new yeah. style. I see. Uh, well, yeah, because you <laughs> haven't taken the haircut. <laughs> it's it's a nightmare. Um, I, I should note all my all my conflicts of interest here. We're here to talk to Greg about his new book, Dedicated Lives: Stories of Pioneers of Women's Football in Australia, which is out through Fair Play Publishing. But my conflict of interest. Let's just get it out of the way. I know Greg for some years now, because we had, at one point, the same PhD supervisor, one Anne Sison. Um, so, you know, we both had to go through the process during a thesis where, at the end of it, you have to go, thank you, Ian Sison, for your support <laughs> and your mentorship. Um, yes. <laughs> and obviously, also, I, you know, I quoted Greg's thesis in my own thesis as well. Yeah, because I did chapters on women's football, um, so that came in handy. Thanks a lot, Greg. Um, okay. And we did have, and we did work together at um, Victoria University for a while. Yes, we as, did. Um, not, as, not, as, in this, not, not in the exact same department, thank goodness. No. But you know, we we had you know coffees and teas have, at the same places. Correct. Yeah. Um, we all um, worshipped at the altar of Anne Sison's little fiefdom, as it was then. <laughs> Yes, that's right. He used to get upset with that as well, and that's well, better or worse. That's right. So, we'll see. this <laughs> book of yours is based on your uh, PhD thesis. It's obviously yes. a cut-down version. Pretty much all the theory's gone out of it. We can talk about the theory a little bit later, but it's essentially the the interviews themselves and the profiles themselves of eighteen of your interview subjects. Correct. I, I tried to. Yeah, I took them uh, because the thesis was just used uh, parts of the individual um, interviews we mm. used to support various themes that that emerged from the from the research. But in this book, the the really the whole the the whole interview goes into that. Um, so the women's stories are reproduced in full. But hopefully, I tried to put it in a like a chronological order. So starting with Elaine. Uh, and working its way through to the like the two thousands from the nineteen seventies. I mean, when I read the thesis a long time ago, now, I mean, obviously, the thing that always gets you in an old history is the interviews. I mean, yes, the theory is there, and it's, an imp- and yeah, it's yeah. important, but it's the stories themselves. So, I remember reading like many years ago, and I still got it on my shelf. Um, Elizabeth Kubler Ross's, um, you know, death and dying. Um, the, the famous book where the five stages of grief emerges from. Yep. And, yeah, look, there's a lot of theory in there. But I keep going back to the interviews, to the actual stories that the patients, the subjects are, are talking yep. about. Yep. Um, so, I mean, it's great that the fuller interviews have managed to get through to a new publication. But also, it, well, it's worthwhile for me because I've already got the thesis. So, you know, it's, it's yep. worth me spending the uh, 30-odd bucks to get a new copy of this, yep. this book. But... It's, it covers a lot of things. It, co- it, it really is a tapestry of, say, 40-odd years of women's soccer in Australia and the various motivations 
pathways, obstacles, yeah. um, how they go, how people get into the game. What surprised you the most about all the different stories that you heard? I mean, in general, about the, the sort of. Um, I, I just I was surprised. I think when I started, I was probably very naive in terms of, you know, the depth of the history, because there was very very little done or very very, very little about or written about the women's game, and I think I was surprised about how um, complex and deep some of the stories or how much was involved and how much they actually dedicated. Um, yeah, yeah, dedicated lives. How much they dedicated their lives to develop mm. the game. And I, I, and I think the thing that come out of a lot of it was they were just they were just so keen for acknowledgement for the people that put that time and effort in and then dedicated their lives and sometimes their whole families to the development of the game, never had any recognition, uh, never had any respect. And I think just having someone come along and give them that opportunity um, was uh, they were very, very, and they're still to this date. I mean, what is it now? I think I started talking to them in 2011. And we now, well, 10 years later, nearly mm. 12 years, and I still talk to them, not all of them, but, I, you know, some of them. Um, and uh, they still um, are very happy about the process and having their stories and and the pioneers, you know, be acknowledged. Th- those support structures are really interesting I mean, obviously, that then the first question becomes: How did you become involved in the game yeah. to the participants themselves? And obviously, in your story, you, you bring up the fact that your daughter started playing, yeah. and that's how you got involved. Yeah. And that's certainly for a lot of the family members who are involved in this. Um, yes, there's some who are involved, you know, their fathers or husbands or yeah. brothers or whatever yeah. are football players. But just as often, it's just like, well, the the women or the girls themselves started playing, and then sort of dragged people along with them for the ride. Yeah, well, uh, yep, a lot of brothers, well, you know, like even if uh, this woman's not in the book, but hopefully in there, so Pat O'Connor, who is very, um, um, sadly, her husband's only recently passed, but she's um, started, virtually started a lot of the football in New South Wales when she came here in 1963. But she started playing, she come from England, but when she started playing, she played because her husband was playing. or And a lot of the others started playing because they, their brothers were playing. And they were dragged along to the games or the, the training. And, um, you know, they were, they, so they said, well, well, if he can play, well, I want to play. You know, so they, family was very important into, in why a lot of them started to actually put their boots on. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting as well. I mean, in the sense that when you go across the different states from Queensland to Northern New South Wales to Sydney to, to Melbourne, it doesn't all line up. I mean, it seems to be a bit easier in some places to get started as a girl soccer player than it did, say, Melbourne, for instance. Um, the, because at least the soccer infrastructure, the way it was, it was not necessarily ethnically aligned. You didn't have those issues. Um, it was regional, so, you know, sporty girls were kind of accepted. It just seems a little bit easier for some people in some places. Oh, I'd say so. I think that, I think in the bigger cities, I think once like for Melbourne and Sydney and particularly I, I think a lot of the, uh, the women that I interviewed, I, I suppose were more uh, Victorian centric mm. or Melbourne centric. And once the, once the, the women started and once the, the, the actual game started to grow, that's right. They had that infrastructure, although they were trying to move in on to the games or the grounds that were, were controlled by the men or the men's clubs and stuff like that. But I mean, that, that's right. The infrastructure was there. The numbers were there. 
So they, it grew quickly. Like if you look at northern New South Wales and when they started, they had four teams, but they had to go, you know, that's the, the area is a lot smaller and a lot faster and the numbers just aren't there. So yeah. it's a bit slower, you know. I mean, I mean this, one of the things that when I first read the thesis, and it certainly comes through in the book as well, is it reveals a community of Britishness, of Englishness. Yes. That's right. Yes, very much so. We we talk a lot about in Australian soccer history about obviously the post-war continental European ethnic boom yeah. and the influence that has. Yeah. Uh, in more recent times, I suppose the work that people like Andu and Roy have done, and yeah. you know all sorts of Australian soccer historians focus on the very Scottish and English character of you know pre nineteen forty five soccer in Australia. Yeah, but, you know we. I mean, it's, it is women's football, and obviously the gender element is the key part to focus on. But, my goodness, when I saw that, I'm like, this is incredible. This is a different ethnic dimension. Yep. And, some of the, and, and some of the interview subjects are quite aware of it, that that's how it starts. Yep. You know, they, they know about football in England, whether it's men's football or women's football or whether it's just because it's part of the culture. They're aware that's of right. soccer. Um. And it makes total sense for them to get involved here because their husbands, their brothers get involved here in this in, yeah. in certain cases. Yeah. Well, I think their families are more so when, when they come here for mm. various reasons, for work or whatever, their parents are and hook up with clubs very much, you know, straight away, communities, similar communities. But and the but if you go through, I mean, that's right, you, you're right. There's a lot of them now linked to England or Scott, you know, to Great Britain have, you know, fathers have played in Scotland or have brothers have played or have no relatives have played or have played themselves, like Betty Hall played for Luton Ladies and then come over here. And, of course, people find out about that and, of course, contacted her. And I, oh, I hear you played soccer in uh, England, Betty. Can you help us get a team going here? And I love that story that Betty has where she's talking about, you know, some game that they played and there was some incident in England and it gets reported in the Herald here, in Herald Sun. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't make any sense. Um, That's right. I think even Roy, I think in one of his um, his historical publications stated that um, uh, a lot of the women or a lot of people were reading about some of the escapades Mm. of women's teams in England or Great Britain during the war. Uh, and, And I suppose that had some kind of, you know, they were seeing the women do well and, uh, and participating in a sport, which wasn't, Normally, well, well, certainly for the 1920s movement, we sort of discussed the where does that impulse come from in the 1920s, and it's like, well, clearly they probably read about it, yeah. well, they've heard about it from people coming back from England after the war in, in their nurse work or whatever. Yeah. Um, but you know, again, getting into the game, it's, I mean, there's all it, we're talking, we're talking about the gatekeepers and the permissions and all this kind of stuff in a moment, yeah. but there seems to be a real split between a lot of the girls who are like who don't even consider that they shouldn't play soccer. It's just like, I want to play soccer. That's yeah. a totally legitimate thing for me to do. And then there are other interview subjects who are like, girls can play soccer? <laughs> it's that question mark. It's that aha moment. What, what we can? Well, do I want to do this? That's right. Yeah. And, it, and, and it, yeah, this is, we're, we're at a stage now where it's basically become normalised. Girls can play pretty much any sport they want to. Yeah. Um, it's, it's important to get down these stories about all the different ways 
people came to the game in that era uh, when there weren't fixed, established, long-running sort of networks and pathways and infrastructures. Oh, yeah. I mean, if they didn't know, I mean, if the girls wanted to play soccer, uh, they play. They play with boys' teams or they some of them cut their hair a bit or they disguise themselves to go to those sort of limits to play. I mean, others, as you said, would come to the game because they, as they found out, girls' teams were being created and go, well, that's what I want to play, you know. My brother plays that, so if I can play now, I'm going to do it. But that's right. There's, the stories, yeah, people don't realise that's why history is so important and I think I, I think you want to talk about oral history a bit later, but the stories uh, and the experiences of these people um, during these this time or any kind of period is very, very important. It's interesting because, I mean, this, again, it, you, the things you take for granted now, again, it, a lot of that comes down to now. And I think this is why I'd recommend the book to pretty much anybody, but especially any woman, any girl who wants to play the game now, anyone who wants to get into administration needs to read this book just to understand how little there was in terms of infrastructure. You see multiple interview subjects taking up multiple roles at the same time. So oh, the yeah. players and their coaches and their administrators and their fundraisers. And each step is building upon threadbare infrastructure. And everything that you know women have got now, and it's still not enough. They still need more. Even we were talking about Andy Pascal before, well, but the triple this was W League. Why were they for the A-League first and not the W-League yeah. as well? Um, it came through a really difficult process. And it's, it's even within the broader context of sports development in general in terms of uh, infrastructures and processes and committees and governance. Yeah. When we look at, say, the history of the VFL or the New South Wales Rugby League, you know, run on a shoestring budget basically by comparison and, you know, volunteer staff and whatnot, we can't. We sometimes struggle to imagine comparing it to now, where those organisations have hundreds of staff and billions of dollars at their disposal. But yet, you don't actually have to look very far to see the example of how a governance structure, an infrastructure process develops, because it's right there in front of you. It's women's sport. I mean, some of those, some of those, well, a fair majority of those women. Uh, particularly the ones that had been in the game since, you know, the 1960s right through. And some of those now are, are quite elderly. But are they 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 covered those, you know, as you say, player, administrator, coach, referees. Yeah. Volunteers. I mean, the volunteer um, brigade or that bloody, that level that supported and made that, that uh, sport grow uh, was phenomenal. If you take Elaine Watson, Betty Hall, those, the clubs that they played for, the clubs that they supported, you know, the fundraising they did for, for buildings, dressing rooms, playing fields, it just goes on and on. And, I mean, without those people and without those struggles, um, you know, they wouldn't, be, uh, they wouldn't be where they are today. And because of, I mean, it's, 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 it's quite clear as well in the selection in this book as well where, a lot of the people are very aware of the history and the struggle. And one of the concerns that they have, and it's repeated a number of times across a few people, is once they make the mergers with, they get amalgamated into the yeah. men's mainstream system is, 
not just will they get treated like second-class citizens or even third-class citizens behind, not just the men, but the boys, but will it all be just treated as, well, we're here now and that's it, it's done, it's all accomplished. And what you lose then is the history of that struggle, the knowledge of the struggle. And certainly in the case of the Victorian response, like Maggie Kumi, um, very aware that they had to retain the knowledge and the history yeah. of what had come before. Because yeah. if they didn't have that knowledge, they, if they lost it, then everything that they fought for was always at risk of um, going back to what it was. Yeah. I think Teresa Diaz in the book says it really well, that she was concerned that if uh, and when the Australian Women's Association amalgamated with the men's game, that they didn't see it as, okay, we've just started now. We didn't start the game in 2000. Mm. This game has been played for decades before that, and that history they were worried that that history would be lost. And I think that was one of the main struggles that they had to deal with. If we go this way, does that mean, you know, we don't want the game, the women's game, to just be seen, okay, we're with the men's now and this is where we start. We don't want to diss and lose that history. And the pioneers that put in all that work to get them where they were at that point. I mean, there were reasons why they probably were. It was a, a fait accompli, but, and they had to... Uh, to amalgamate with the men if they wanted to sort of play internationally as well under FIFA, mm. but uh, but that's that's a very real reason, and they they were very very concerned about that. And it's you when you don't have the depth as well. So I mean, a lot of those early days, you know, you have twelve year olds playing with thirty year olds. Yeah, and. I don't know how they did that. Uh, well, I think it was, I can't remember who it was, but somebody was talking about being, I think it was maybe Therese Davies, I can't remember, but, you know, talking about being goalkeeper and getting flipped in the air within about five minutes. Yeah. But it's, do you wonder sometimes when you, when you were doing these interviews, whether if other mainstream sports like Australian Rules or Rugby League were available to these people, would they have taken those sports up? Was soccer just a convenient option in some cases because it didn't have an entrenched kind of as much an entrenched opposition to women playing? Uh, that's a good point. That's a good question. Um, I never, I never, I gave it much thought really, but I, I think that soccer probably would have been a, bit, a little bit more available to them. I mean, they would have been, it would have been a, a more amenable, mainly because of family connections and stuff. I think, um, and. I think the the opportunities for them to play, say, rugby league or AFL, probably wouldn't have been there. It would have been a greater barrier for sure. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's I mean, quite a few times they want to talk about the physicality of playing. Yeah. They, they enjoy that the way you can express yourself playing soccer. You can't say in netball or in hockey in the same kind of way. Even though hockey is a very similar sport logistically, um, conceptually. Um, that certainly comes up a lot. I, I want to express myself physically in yeah. this way. Yeah. Um, they like to play I, the game hard as well. They like to play it. They like I, I've play seen it, it firsthand. Yeah. I've seen it at the lowest levels. Um, it, it's one of the things that comes up that's really interesting and, and it's a sort of a minor threat, but it does run through. I mean, yeah, they talk a lot about the sacrifices they make to play internationally and, and state teams and to do tours yeah. and whatever. 
And there's also the players that um, sort of rebelled against that as well a little bit. They didn't like how serious it got. And that's a a really interesting – because sometimes you you look at women's football and say, are they trying to be too much like the men? How does it maintain its own cultural particularities? Um, The netballer Liz Ellis asked this question about the professionalisation of women's sport in general a few years ago. It was a really interesting question. How do we avoid making women's sport exactly like men's sport with all the, the vices and the aggressiveness and the sort of lack of camaraderie involved in that? Where you see even like social level male soccer players are hyper competitive, yeah, uh, you get aggro. Um, whereas, <laughs> whereas I think professional sport brings that anyway, Paul. Sure, modern, but, but, modern. Even, but, but even very low levels yeah. of men's soccer have that quality. Yeah. And it's interesting when you watch there's a Victorian uh, videographer uh, Stephen Gray who has a series called Football Chaos, where he video he films games from all sorts of aspects from the tour and soccer yeah. every weekend. Yeah. And one of the great things that he does is he films very low-level women's soccer. Yeah. Sometimes even the churches leave. Yeah. And it's purely social. Yeah. And what you notice, and it's what I noticed when I first started watching women's soccer maybe 15 years ago, when I was watching a friend of mine play, how much they just love it. They just love it. Yeah, it's the game, it's the friendships. Yeah, it's the social. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. There's that love and that social aspect of the game, and I think they just want to play. And I, I, I suppose if you're talking about that upper elite level of professional sport, if you're talking Matildas mm. and the and the and the women and the girls that are trying to get in and break into that, of course, there's that mm. hard line aspect. But, 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 you know, but the more the more players that women soccer gets, yeah. the further yeah. down that professional athlete yeah, comes. That's right. And it's an interesting challenge for what women's soccer is, especially for people that have grown up with it a certain way, you know, who who they talk about the friends and the relationships and the camaraderie yeah. and the fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a very different thing now because the top is coming closer in a lot yeah. of ways. So you know you've got yeah. NPL players who train who are getting you know starting to get a little bit of money for what they're doing. They're being treated with professional coaches and so forth. Yeah. Um, and it leads on into the other aspect as well where, you know, people want to continue coaching, but if, you, but if you're a woman, you can't coach men's teams because that's pretty much how most men's teams are not even going to get close to considering that. Mm-hmm. And yet the cost of becoming a women's coach is the same as becoming a men's coach, but there isn't the same money for coaching women's teams. Mm-hmm. So it, it's interesting to see all the different motivations and sort of colliding against each other. Yeah. And, and it's, it's going to be interesting to see this as a sort of a footnote, as a sort of sorry, not a footnote, sort of like a, a touchstone. This is where we were at at a particular point in time, and sort of to measure that against. We, we need those kind of milestones, and that's that's a really good thing. Because obviously we have Elaine Watson's books, and um, there's more women's soccer books coming out, and all this. But yeah. this is a really key one because it captures forty years of very different kinds of struggles. And Heather Reid's book as well with Marion Stell, yeah. it's a similar yeah. kind of thing Yeah. Um, from a different angle, from the very top echelon because she covered yeah. exclusively the Matilda's yeah. journey in that journey. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's a fascinating book. It's dedicated to life, stories of pioneers of women's football in Australia. It's by Greg Downs, my fair pay publishing. Uh, it's about 30 odd bucks. Well worth it. It's very 29, good. 20, I think it's 29.95, mate. Cheap, cheap at half the price. Yes. <laughs> Thanks um, for the fine words, Paul. 
We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with Greg again. We'll talk about a little bit about our histories and the methodology behind writing a book like this. This is If You Know Your History on FNR for Full Nation Radio. Welcome back to If You Know Your History on FNR Football Nation Radio, streaming on Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. Uh, with us is Greg Downs. Uh, we were just talking before the previous segment about his new book, Dedicated Lives, uh, Stories of Pioneers of Women's Football Australia. It's an old history, and, well, I thought it'd be useful just to have a little bit of a chat about the process of doing oral history. Um it, especially in an academic context, because I don't think a lot of our listeners who do histories would have ever done that aspect of it before. Um, before you started your PhD thesis, Greg, how many did you have any experience at all with oral history and its practice, its theory? Nil. <laughs> <laughs> I was very, very naive um, in terms of the oral history process. Um, I thought I get on quite well with people. I like talking to people, I like listening to people. And I, I'm, I think my personality lends itself to that kind of practice. But once you start and get into the, um, or the academia, academic side of things particularly, um, there's a lot to it. And I think the main, the main part, particularly from the beginning, it's the ethical practice that uh, particularly the university requires you to go through and, um, there's an ethics approval process that you need to undertake, um, and uh, that's just in the beginning. And, of course, then when you go into the actual process and um, um, engaging with your participants or interviewees, you need to be uh, very mindful of uh, the individual that you're talking to and, and what you want to get out of the conversation, what questions you've got to ask and so forth and so on. I'll just explain to our listeners that when you do a PhD thesis, at least at Victoria University as it was then, yeah. uh, you have to do at least a couple of um, compulsory units of study. One is about research methodologies and how to write a thesis. <sighs> and the other one was about ethical considerations across, the, across a range of issues. And I would sit in these classes and... I was doing a literature thesis, and meanwhile, I had bio people doing biomechanical and bioethical, you know, theses, scientific theses, um, social work theses. And I'm sitting there like, yeah, this is no, this is no good to me. I mean, I can learn something in biosmosis, I suppose, but I mean, I I was fortunate in the sense I didn't have to do the ethical process. Because really, I was just looking at books mostly. Um, but I was, there'd be times when, you know, you're sitting up in, upstairs in one of the PhD doctorate rooms where people you know, have their own space, the computers, and you'd see some of these students go, oh, I've gotten right back from an ethics committee again, or they didn't understand this, why would they let me do that? And you just try to be sympathetic and say, well, you know, sometimes they don't trust the interview subjects enough. Um, these are people dealing with like refugees and so forth, and like very yeah, vulnerable yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, at what point did you think this is going to be a lot harder than <laughs> you thought it was going to be? When I started to write the, uh, well, 
Well, the ethics, I think I had to put my ethics application in a couple of times. I never went to an ethics class. I didn't know they had them. Oh. Um, so I, I was lucky there. But um, I think once I started to, when you have to choose your methodology and then you have to uh, go through the process of explaining why you chose mm. it and the benefits for it, um, what was involved in it, um, and the um, ups and downs and the pros and cons of doing that methodology. Because a lot of people, um, well, academics will, will argue that the oral history process or methodology is not solid. And there mm. are a lot of people that argue against it based on the valid, you know, the credibility of people's memory, for example. Um, was it, um, you know, is that true history? It's only people's um, memory of that incident or whatever, the past. Mm. Um, and, and whether um, and what kind of bias that would bring to that. And mm. then you have to look at yourself as the interviewer. I'm a male, middle age, I think I was mid-50s then. I was a white male and I was talking to women about a women's sport. Was that appropriate? And then some people would say no. Mm. Because I would be a bias, I'd be pushing, maybe I'd be pushing my agenda instead of letting them tell their stories um, and there's all those kind of those issues floating around bias, memory, credibility. I'd say you've got to get your grip, you've got to get your head around that, and then you've got to prove to the, to the reader or the examiner that what you were going to do was going to usurp all those issues. So obviously the first step is to actually get the, the trust of the ethics committee. That's correct. <laughs> and then you've got to get the trust of the interview subjects, the participants, to use the correct terminology. Yeah. Um, how do you get the trust of participants in that situation? Well, well, I suppose you just, I, I suppose there's a degree, I just went in very, very open and I, 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 I told them we had a, we had a, a, a participant's uh, a, approval and agreement form which they would read. Um, and that would, I would explain that to them, that this is the process that I would be going through, that if they had any problem, they didn't want to continue it, they didn't have to. Um, and I would let them have a look at the questions beforehand so they knew, they knew whether there was anything that they wanted to ask. It was, And I just asked the questions and trusted that they would tell me their story. So that's, what I, that's all I basically wanted to hear. I, I wasn't trying to throw any trick questions in there. I, I just wanted to let them tell their story, basically. And it, um, Yeah, it's, it's, I, mean, it, I mean, some of the people you spoke to were clearly well-educated, were from, had academic backgrounds themselves, so some level understood the process, they, they, they were accomplished in their own right in, in yeah. terms of high-achieving high fields. Yeah. But quite a few of the people you're talking to, um, you know, they're like, I dropped out of school at such and such an age. Yeah. Uh, well, they come from very working class yep. backgrounds. So the way that different groups sort of approach the, an academic person is quite different, isn't it? Yeah. I, these, well, I never had, uh, thinking back, I never had any of those kind of problems that differ. Of course, they speak to you differently and uh, they express themselves differently. What I did notice sometimes, though, that once the transcript of the interview went back to the interviewees and they would read it. And once they knew it was to be published, some of them would go, oh, I don't want that part in it. Or they don't want, you know, they'd be a little bit more uh, retrospect on actually what they were actually saying. And if they knew the whole interview was being 
sort of published, mm. they were a little bit worried about some of the issues that were raised. And so... Um, we, were there particular we issues that were raised that across the board that were sort of like people were afraid to speak up about? Or Yeah, well, well they might have mentioned it to me in the interview while we were chatting away, but they might be have mentioned somebody's name um, about something that had happened and they thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't, I don't want that to be said because I don't want their friends or they, I know them or I don't want people to get the wrong idea about what I'm trying to say and stuff like that. Yeah. It, it, it's very interesting because obviously the issue du jour of the women's soccer the last week is abuse and harassment yeah. and sexuality. Yeah. And obviously the sexuality stuff doesn't come up in this, and I understand people would be uncomfortable speaking a lot about a lot of those things for a lot of reasons. And but one of the the, the common the most common thread is how much of a positive spin people try to put on their time in the game. Um and I wonder if there's any if if you felt there was any sort of sense of they were trying to put too much of a positive spin or trying to sort of negate some of the negatives that they were experienced. Um, I think no, I think they were all really, really honest. There were um, I didn't in terms of the sexuality from my position, I didn't I didn't want to go in directly about the sexuality issue. Mm. I asked uh, open questions and some of the women went there yeah, um, and some didn't. But I, I didn't press that. I didn't think back in those back then that I was in a position where I was going to make come sort of judgment calls or comments based on women's sexuality. So I, I sort of left that a little bit, you know, alone. Mm. Um, but if they wanted to make a comment, and some did, you know, uh, um, and was very open, I don't think anyone... I mean, there might have, there were some changes at the back end because they were a little bit concerned about some comments, but I think the majority were very, very honest, and that, I think that come through very clearly. It's an interesting question because, I mean, one of the things I've, I've sort of written down as a note is, I mean, when you're doing the interviews and then you're writing it down and transcribing it, you want to get across the natural voice yeah. of the participant. And I think you do that pretty well here. Like... I know Maggie Kumi. One of the interviews subjects is Maggie Kumi, a stalwart yeah, yeah. Victorian psyker. Yeah, yeah. And I know I've known her for about a decade now, I think. Yeah. When I read that bit, I'm like, yeah, that's Maggie. Yeah. The vocabulary. Well, think, yeah. The yeah. Vocabulary I didn't change way- it. Yeah. 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 And- I didn't change the interviews. I wanted to leave them. And a lot of them had some kind of, you know, they'd repeat themselves a little bit. I didn't want to go back and really. Uh, tidy them up to a degree, if you know what I mean, in mm. one of a better term. But, yeah, I think that brings their character through a little bit. How reliable are memories? How, I mean, what did you find out about memory when you when you completed this process? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I asked, um, there was a, an author, uh, I went to have a chat, I went to one of his promotioners of his book, an Australian author, and now I can't even... uh, William McInnes. Do you know William McInnes? Yeah, he came to my house once to do a filming for, um, yeah, for uh, Blue Healers. Okay. Well, he was was, uh, promoting one of his books up in Byron, and I went to... uh, It was like a drinks and nibblies function, and um, Gail was, we were sitting there and I was thinking about writing uh, a history of my mother at the time. And, and my brothers always had a go at me because they reckon my memory's shot. 
and they and I don't every all of my stories were not true. So we asked him the question: What happens when you write stories about your from based on your memory of your family, and um, and your brothers or sisters disagree? He goes, I don't. That's my memory. That's more. That's all important. That's what I write based on what I remember. So I, I I took a lot out of that, and I thought that was very very important. You don't. I didn't. Um, I didn't learn anything new about memory per se, but I think um, I based um, I based my belief on their honesty and what they told me, and and I think you can tell when you talk to people. Oh, they were this so pleased and so happy to be able to share their story, mm. and that someone was actually taking them seriously. That I had no problem with believing it's, them. It's a, it's an interesting case study in the case of say women's soccer in general, but you know especially in Victoria. I mean, there's so little documentation which survives of women's soccer across the board for all sorts of reasons. Mm. So oral history is almost like default the way you have to go about writing yeah. a, a history of women's soccer. But you have this situation in Victoria, for instance, where the, the, the women's clubs are less, less clubs and more teams. So when they find the going tough at one particular men's club, they move to another club and then they move again and the name changes. And you see that come up a lot. And then there's a whole black hole of information from about 1984 to about 1992. So I know uh, Victoria's History and Heritage Coordinator, Tony Pasoglia, will be fascinated with this book because it's got at least some recollection, vaguely at least, of yeah. timelines of what happened in those kind of missing eight or ten years. It's, <laughs> But you, you sit there sometimes and you're like, I, I, I mean, I, I, how do you make sense of this? How do you verify a lot of this information? And I guess you have to just trust people in this kind of in this particular instance. Yeah, yeah. I, I did. I tried to track different things or different comments for um, that related to different clubs. And some I got under. I have talked to say Watsonia Football Club and uh, where um, Betty Hoare and Mick Horse uh, contributed in their early days back in the eighties. And uh, Caroline Monk played, and I think she was the only girl that come from a woman that um, played for the Matildas from that club. So I have had, so I, I, if I can or I can find links, I try and contact different places to verify things, and they they've been very very helpful. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of work. I said there's a lot of opportunities for work out there if someone wants to do it. <laughs> Last question. Um, yeah. Most of the time, are you interviewing one on one? Um, most of the time I did have occasions where like a couple would turn, say Nikki Leach and Caroline Monk, say for good friends turned up together. Um, I didn't expect that, but it, it happened. Um, and I think Therese, De, Therese, uh, Therese Diaz and, um, Maggie Coomey were together. And obviously Mick. Mick and, and Betty. Betty. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I will finish up on this because actually years before you started this project, I think you know, Ian and I actually interviewed Betty and Mick yeah. for part of a project. And it's almost like one person. Yeah. They'd obviously, he'd be going, no, that's not right. And they'd be arguing <laughs> they'd be about jumping. So it's interesting because obviously it's, I mean, obviously they share a lot of the history. They come up through it together. Yeah. Um, but really, the person you really want to talk to is Betty. Yeah. But they're kind of inseparable. Yeah. And Betty's memory was a little bit, 
uh, wasn't she would she constantly say, oh, I can't remember the date, but then Mick had come in and say it was in 19 whatever. And I think in the thesis, I, I talk about both of them. They, they're interviewed separately, but in the book, I just concentrated more on Betty and wove Mick in there. Yeah. Um, rather than and, do and that's, and that's certainly, I mean, it's a really interesting, I mean, there's a lot of different dynamics between the men and women's relationships, yeah. uh, family relationships. That's the one where it's just so intertwined. It's yeah. Oh, I mean, definitely. It's well, they were married at a young age. They were married like in their late teens in in London. So they've been together for you know their whole rides been football. Their whole mm. life's been football. So then that, that shows. Well, Greg, I think we've come up to the end of the show. Thanks for your right, time. Um, I really appreciate you getting to promote the book and hope that a few people would go out there and buy it. Um, and thanks for having a chat a bit about oral histories as well and give us a little bit of an insight into how it works on the academic level. It's not just rocking up to someone in the street with a microphone going, yeah, tell me about your life. That's right. <laughs> I wish it was. All right. But thanks, no, mate, thank you very much for the offer, I, um, and it's really nice to see you again. Oh, it's always good to talk to you. Yeah. Okay, um, mate. Thanks right. again. See ya.